This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up through Patreon and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out, and then we're going to get on with the dumpster fire that is the United States economy and capital markets in just moments. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for over a decade. They have done over $3 billion in sales. They are a very reputable name in the gold and silver business. It is the only place that I personally buy my gold from. That is not because they told me to do that. It's not because they're patrons of the podcast. It's because they turn their orders around quickly. I've never had an issue with them. They have good inventory, and I generally like doing business with them in general. There is... A link to JM Bullion's post-COVID gold and silver report for free in the podcast description. And if you have any questions or want to check out JM Bullion, you can use the link in the podcast description or email my friend Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. Kathy is a... Uh, employee of JM Bullion that's set up just to handle QTR podcast listeners. So if you have questions, if you're a first-time gold and silver buyer, if you don't know anything about bullion, uh, and you're looking for a personalized touch, give Kathy a ring. She would love to hear from you, especially now as we head into the holidays. Let them know that QTR sent you. They'll give you $5 off your order and free shipping. And also, with gold prices crashing, it's not necessarily a, uh, a bad time to Look into buying more bullion, at least if you're of my mindset. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, But I want to shout them out first and foremost. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a wonderful little day trading community run by my friend Pete Hedgetus. If you're tired of the nonsense and bullshit of normal day trading services, where basically a lot of them try to front run you and they don't really give a shit about you, Pete started his service because he wanted to do something a little bit different. He wanted to create an actual community of people that give a shit about one another. And that is why he started The Trader's Path. He offers a daily watch list. He offers live streams of his trading. He trades red markets, green markets, stocks, options. Uh, Pete is a uh, wonderful guy, an honest guy to do business with. I'm happy to recommend him. If you're looking to surround yourself with a day trading community, Uh, which uh, is probably not a bad idea nowadays with the market going completely haywire. People to bounce ideas off of, uh, new ideas that you're looking for to maybe check out on your own. The Trader's Pass is a great place to do that. So link to that is in my podcast description as well. And I want to thank Pete for continuing to support the podcast. This podcast also brought to you by my brother Sang Lucci over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Master Course got underway last week. From what I heard, he had a great response uh, a lot of great people actually contributed to that, too. My friend Samantha LaDuc, who uh, I know from Twitter, was apparently a contributor. She is a very sweet woman and knows what she's doing. I've met her in person. Uh, but Lucci apparently got a good response for the Master Course, which is great. Uh, I think he'll be doing another one in a couple of months. So if you want to get in touch with him about that, he'd be happy to uh, help you Uh, figure out when the hell that's going to be. In the time being, it's worth checking out the Steam Room. The Steam Room is the original OG piece of software to track money coming into the illiquid options market, which can oftentimes telegraph moves in the equities market. It's a great strategy. Before the whole world was doing unusual options activity, Sang Lutri and Wall Street Jesus had the Steam Room, which is a piece of software that they've been engineering and working on for almost a decade now. Um... If I had to guess, I would say that they're years ahead of their competition. Um, It's an aesthetically beautiful piece of software to look at, and it helps you 
Read tape and track options flow. Folks, we're not trying to dig deep into the fundamentals. We're trying to see where the big fucking money is going and maybe uh, follow that. And that has been a strategy that Lucci has employed and uh, has used and uh, has worked well for him. So if you're interested in market psychology, tape reading, or any of that, check out Sang Lucci in the Steam Room. Lucci or Pete will give you free trials. Just let them know QTR sent you. Tell them you don't want to give a credit card number. Don't make sure you get hooked up. Um, Make sure you reach out to them. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer, my homeboy Russ Valenti, Crite and Titus, thank you guys so much for your continued support, and some of my newest patrons, Tony Prez is in the house. What's going on, brother? Ray and Daniel Rayther, thank you. Derek Seifert and the folks over at IntelliTrade.app, I appreciate your support. Eric Goodwell, Matthew Stillwell, and some people that have been patrons for a hot minute, like Sherman McCall, thank you. My friend Sin Silvers is in the house. Paul Isaac, Robert Weisenfeld, thank you, my brother. And my homeboy Stank Love, still with me. What's up, Stank? All right, this podcast has a three-drink minimum, and it must be set up front that I am not an investment advisor or an investment professional of any kind. I hold no licenses, no registrations. This is not investment advice. Do not follow this advice. Do your research elsewhere. Do turn off this podcast and listen to another podcast. And again, do not, do not take any of this as financial advice. So what has happened over the last couple of days? Some things I want to discuss. First and foremost, how about the idea that Janet Yellen is now the front runner as Joe Biden's pick for Treasury Secretary? And the market has rallied on that news. I've said often on this podcast, if I were Janet Yellen and I oversaw the expansion of a massive bubble between whatever, 2008 and 2018 or however long she was uh, head of the Fed, that I would be retired. Every once in a while, Yellen would weigh in over the last you know couple of years, even when she wasn't, uh, you know, after she had stepped down and Jerome Powell had come in, every once in a while there would be this headline. You know, Yellen steps in and says this, this, and this, blah, blah, blah. And of course, she's given uh, credibility and credence by the media because they don't really understand how easy it is for central banks to manipulate and make it look as though everything's fine uh, by printing more money, which, of course, widens the inequality gap further. So naturally, she is being heralded as a hero. So when she would say something, the media would pick it up right away. For example, in 2017, when Yellen came out of retirement to say that she expects no new financial crisis in our lifetimes. This is uh, June 2017. U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen said on Tuesday that she does not believe that there will be another financial crisis. Oh, this is while she was still uh, Federal Reserve Chair. I'm sorry. She does not believe that there will be another financial crisis for at least as long as she lives, thanks largely to reforms of the banking system since 2007-2009. It was under three years later that the market and economy both collapsed as a result of the pandemic. (laughs) What she means is there would be no systemic uh, financial crisis, meaning the financial system won't go under. But really... What we're doing is, even though it's not an obvious collapse of the banks like it was in 2008, what happened earlier this year and what continues to happen is a systematic, methodical collapse of the really 
global monetary system and global economic system as we know it as a result of ongoing policies. And that's kind of what makes inflation and central reserve banking so nefarious, right? The fact that the actions of the central bank have these consequences that are not broadly understood and happen in very small increments. And so all over the course of the long term, the inequality gap widens and it brutalizes the middle and lower class. But at the same time, people don't really understand that. And it happens on such a small kind of microscopic level on a daily basis that it's difficult for people to kind of see. But the further away from normal, the worse it gets. It's like the space shuttle taking off one millimeter in the wrong direction. By the time it gets to the atmosphere, it's 10,000 miles off course. Because the further up it gets, the further off course it gets. So Yellen, who has weighed in on several things since she left the Fed. So it's probably, I think it's been two years since she, she left the Fed. And I've privately said, if I were her... I would be retired on a fucking beach right now, trying to find the worm at the bottom of a tequila bottle, wondering how the whole thing didn't go up in flames while she was in charge of it all. And when the balance of power shifted to Jerome Powell and there was a transition, I think which I likened to Yellen passing a flaming bag of dog shit to Jerome Powell and, you know, going off on her merry way afterwards... Uh, Yellen should have just kept quiet. She should have just disappeared and backed away into the bushes like Homer Simpson in that gif where he just kind of quietly backs away and been like, you know what, Powell? Everything that happens now is your problem. So 2020 rolls around. We have a pandemic. We're not prepared. You got all these idiot politicians that want the Fed now to interject in climate change and racial equality and all these things that you can't necessarily solve with a printing press, nor does the Fed really have any type of expertise in. So even if you wanted to give somebody the power to allocate purchasing power to try to address climate change, which is really has nothing to do with what the Fed should be doing, but even if you wanted to do that, what qualifications does Jerome Powell and Lael Brainerd, what qualifications do they have to be doling out purchasing power? Now, that hasn't stopped them from doling out purchasing power to the upper class while decimating the lower class. But, you know, it's a farce to think that they should be involving themselves with those issues to begin with. That's not their job as an objective central bank. It's not what they should be doing, number one. But we're seeing the politicization of the Fed moving forward here. The Fed and the government are getting closer and closer. There's no, you know, there really never was any objectivity, but those lines are blurring even further with every year that goes by and every crisis that they respond to. This idea of, oh, Mnuchin is asking the Fed to return funds to the Treasury. The Fed wants funds to, you know, go to Main Street and the Treasury wants them and this, that, and the other. It's like, who cares? Who cares? The Fed has essentially cut Wall Street and the economy a blank check for whatever they need, whenever they need it. And if you guys want to piss and moan and argue over $100 billion going here, there, or elsewhere at the end of this quote-unquote uh, you know, crisis recovery or whatever they want to call it, that's completely irrelevant. I was reading that headline 
Like, who cares? Who cares about the remaining $100 billion? You've already, you know, shifted 2 or $3 trillion in purchasing power. So now the woman that kind of enabled the next iteration of central bank insanity after Bernanke is being made treasury secretary. So what does that do? That closes the supposed objectivity gap between the central banks and the governments even further. It politicizes the central banks even further. Because now you have the old federal bank boss, Federal Reserve Bank boss, who will be communicating directly with the new Federal Reserve Bank boss to talk about monetary policy. So in essence, you know, Yellen looks to me to just be an extension of the Fed now on the government side of the fence. And that, of course is extraordinarily dangerous and will only accelerate the moral hazard and the horrifying decision-making that we have been making with regard to monetary policy. That is also why it's baffling that gold prices have gone down. So actually, I saw early this morning, home prices were up, I think, the highest in six years or something in September which is hilarious because it comes during what is being called the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. So this only goes to prove that there are two kind of tranches of people in the country that are bearing the brunt of this pandemic in two completely different ways, right? One is the middle class and the lower class who are tied to the economy. They're tied to the actual performance of the economy. If the economy sputters, they lose jobs. If they lose jobs, they lose their income. If they lose their income, it becomes a disaster. Then you have to worry about debt. You have to worry about bankruptcies. You have to worry about deleveraging. You have to worry about a place to stay. You have to worry about money for food. The problems for the lower and middle class are very much tied to the economy. So say you are an aspiring home buyer. Maybe you don't own a home yet or maybe a rent. You're an aspiring home buyer. The rising price of homes, and and I would say most lower middle class people have a mortgage, you know, or are still in apartments and aspire to buy at some point. Um, Those people are now seeing the prices of homes go higher. And even though mortgage rates are, you know, the lowest I think they've ever been, and the accessibility to mortgages is relatively favorable it is still going to cost them more if they want to become homeowners now than it would have at any point over the last however long, uh, six years or whatever the statistic went back to. The point is that's not really what's supposed to happen when an economy slows down. An economy slows down, you would expect the prices of homes to fall because in essence, the amount of buyers would dry up the amount of supply hitting the market would increase as people look to, uh, you know, catch the top and maybe start to delever uh, as uh, times become tougher in terms of their income, their cash flow, whatever. Um, but we don't see that market dynamic now. What we see is an economy that's sputtering, but home prices still going up at the same time, and that is a result of not only the uh, favorable terms which people can get mortgages on now. But the Federal Reserve bank backstopping, rather, the, the, the capital markets, the bond markets, the housing markets, and all the markets. And of course, that backstopping is being done at the cost of the 
uh, not only the lower and middle class who bear the brunt of the inequality gap widening, but also everybody who pays the eventual coming inflation tax that will result as uh, that will come as a result of the money supply increasing. So as that money starts to meander its way out, it will eventually start to impact consumer prices. If you don't see it in prices, you'll see it in shrinkflation, which means, you know, a 2.99 bag of potato chips that used to buy you 8 ounces of chips will now buy you 7 ounces, something like that. But one way or another, the lower middle class are catching the shit end of the stick here with monetary policy and these are the policies that Yellen has enabled. And no better example of the inequality gap widening has there been than the headline I read this morning on Zero Hedge that Elon Musk has now become the second richest person in the world. Now, there's a lot of obvious beefs that you can have with this, uh, not the least of which is the fact that they also pointed out Tesla has something like a $5 billion accumulated deficit uh, since inception. But I wrote on Twitter this morning, you know, 14 months ago, Tesla was valued at $43 billion. It had a market cap of $43 billion. This year alone, Elon Musk's net worth went up $100 billion, okay? So if you want to give fodder for the idiots that don't understand the difference between capitalism and socialism and want to, you know, take exception with billionaires and yell at them, even though this is all the central bank's fault, and in this case, some of it is Elon Musk's fault, due to uh, what I would consider to be aggressive business practices. But for all of the people that misunderstand what is creating this problem, it's very easy for them to want to turn around and blame the billionaires because of it. Because you see Musk's net worth go up $100 billion in a year, which is more than twice what his entire company was worth just 14 months ago. And you wonder, that is out of whack somehow. You don't really know how. I mean, I know how. You guys, most of you know how. But if you don't understand the capital markets, you don't understand compensation programs, you don't understand, you know, Tesla's accounting, you don't understand the difference between gap and non-gap, you don't really get, you're not a markets person. You're a plumber. And you see that Tesla was worth $43 last year and Musk's net worth rose $100 billion this year. $100 billion his net worth went up this year. The company has has hardly even grown its top line. They have 0.6% of the auto market. And somehow, through some fuckery, this guy's net worth goes up $100 billion. You don't even have to understand the markets to know that something weird is going on there. What, how does that happen? It wasn't a it wasn't a 20-fold increase in profits. It wasn't a 20-fold increase in revenue. I mean, at least companies like Zoom and all these other horrifyingly overpriced bubble stocks, people can turn around and say, "Well, the top line's growing." So they at least have that excuse. "Well, the revenue is growing." But Tesla doesn't really even have that much of an argument to make there, and they certainly don't have that kind of argument to see the market cap 10x over the course of 14 months. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm too deeply rooted in fundamentals. Maybe my brain isn't in the stonks only go up mindset enough, but to me, it doesn't make any sense. So 
But what it does show me is exactly the consequence of central bank policies. You know, the whole world sees the Fed come in and start unlimited quantitative easing again earlier this year after the pandemic started. And people think that there is some kind of great life raft that is being thrown to them because their 401ks are now back to where they were. But what you have to understand is even if your 401k, and by the way, most of the lower class and you know lower middle class, they don't even have 401ks. They don't have investments. They don't own stocks. They don't own assets that are catching the inflationary Fed wave, right? They're not homeowners. So they're not benefiting from this massive spike in housing prices. But let's just say you're even in the upper middle class and your 401k goes back to where it was. The, the bifurcation of wealth that occurs as a result of just jamming your shit back to where it was by moving the market to where it is, the redistribution of purchasing power that happens as a result of all this new money hitting the market and where it's going disproportionately goes to the billionaire class, right? So all these socialists that are out there that misunderstand socialism and misunderstand capitalism and misunderstand central banking, it's such a weird group too because they advocate for MMT and they push for central banking as like, hey, this is the only savior and they got us out of the recession and they got us out of the depression and what would we have done without Ben Bernanke? What would we have done without Janet Yellen? They don't even realize that those are the policies that are bifurcating the wealth in the country even further than it's ever been. And every time that we do it, it's taking another iteration of uh, bifurcation, uh, you know, further, right? So I've said often, I think a lot of the civil unrest that happened this year really didn't have anything to do with race. I think that that was what people said that they were protesting about but I think a lot of the and I think most of the people were but I also think some of the riots and some of the looting I think that occurred because you have a lower class that just feels like they've just been shit on they just feel like they can't catch a fucking break they can't get ahead because you can't you really can't I mean it's it's very difficult when the game is rigged the way that it is. Is it possible? Yes. Can you go out and work two jobs and hustle and make you know minimum wage or barely above minimum wage and put something together for yourself? Yes, you can. You got to hustle. You got to work several jobs. I've done it. There hasn't even been a time in recent memory, I don't think, where I haven't had some kind of side hustle or haven't been doing something you know, uh, in addition to my primary source of income. So it's possible and it is... Uh, difficult but it can be done but I think that this bifurcation of wealth it puts this undue pressure on these people and they you know they they may not necessarily understand exactly how the system is rigged and again I think a lot of that anger gets directed towards capitalism when it's not really capitalism's fault it's it's crony capitalism's fault it's the central bank's fault it's politicizing the federal reserve's fault it's these massive bailouts The idea that even if you bought into the idea that stimulus works, right, which I don't buy into, but let's say you're going to put on your Keynesian hat for a second and you're going to say, all right, stimulus is the way out of our problems. We need to have an equitable distribution of new purchasing power 
to help people get ahead and we'll deal with inflation when it happens and we'll try to unwind it at some point and we'll deal with the consequences at some point. Let's just say you're putting on your fucking Keynesian happy hat. Even then, most American citizens, if you weren't committing PPP fraud, got $1,200 in stimulus. Folks, the pandemic has been happening for 9, 10, 11 months now. 11 months. And most U.S. citizens got a one-time check for $1,200. And they got a moratorium on, you know, rents that, I th- on evictions rather, that I think has worn off. They got a little extra unemployment assistance, which uh, has worn off. And really, they've got nothing else. And at the same time, I got to pull up the article here because the statistic was absolutely perverse. Something like the, uh, where the hell is it? Come on, dickhead. There we go. All right. At the same time, members of Bloomberg's billionaire index have seen their wealth rise 23% or $1.3 trillion since the beginning of the year. So just think about that because there's a number right there, $1.3 trillion. So say the Fed cut $3 trillion in stimulus. $1.3 trillion of it went to, went to the billionaires. $1.3 that, That's half. That's half probably. Maybe even more than half of the stimulus that hit the market went directly to the people that need it the least. If that doesn't tell you that the system's rigged, even if you wear the fucking Keynesian happy hat, if that doesn't tell you things are rigged, I don't know what's going to do it. Again, going back months, I've said on Twitter, we have cut, I think, the equivalent of $50,000 or $30,000 per U.S. citizen in stimulus. $1,200 is what most people have gotten. $1,200. So if you're wearing the fucking Keynesian happy hat and you think stimulus is the way out, Even then, the stimulus is being doled out disproportionately. Of course, the broader idea is that stimulating your way out of these issues is, is, you know, not a good idea to begin with. I've talked privately with George Gammon about, well, is there an equitable way to redistribute purchasing power when you do these stimulus packages? So if you were to do a $3 trillion package and you know, two and a half trillion went to the lower and middle class, and a half trillion went to buying fucking bonds and cheesecake factory or whatever the Fed is doing. Uh, that would seem to make more sense. But again, that's assuming you have to go down that road of of bailing out. And you know, <clears throat> another interesting point is I read last night that Japan is bailing out all of its airlines, or that uh, Kuroda had suggested to bail out the airline. Whatever, Japan is mulling some type of massive bailout for the airlines. And I was thinking about it again. And I go back to what John Nigerian said to me, I think in like April when I was doing a podcast, I was on his podcast. We were arguing about the idea of bailouts versus companies that should have money on their balance sheet to prepare for a rainy day. And John makes a very good point, which is if it's the government that forces you to shut down, maybe the government should be responsible for, for, really replacing that cash flow stream that you're missing, right? It's, you know, this is not a restaurant being shut down for a health code violation uh, during normal business hours with no pandemic. 
This is the government doing a broad shutdown of all types of businesses. So maybe they do have some onus to try to replace that cash flow stream or at least give people, I mean, now I think it's obvious, give people the option to open their businesses, take precautions and run their businesses so that people can get back to making the money that they need to live. You know, I used to work at a bar in Philadelphia. I follow them on Instagram and I've been watching them put up uh, one post after the other with what their schedule is. And, you know, it used to just be, all right, well, we're open seven days a week from noon to 2 a.m. Very easy, right? We can do business at any and all of these times. We closed on several holidays. There's nothing to think about, nothing to worry about. We're open. And now it is every week I saw that Tom Wolf last week said, oh, we don't want to serve alcohol the night before Thanksgiving, which, by the way, is the busiest night of the year for bars and restaurants. So I watched the bar I used to work at have to every week they put up a schedule, they change their schedule, they do this, they do that. Monday we're closed, Tuesday we're open 3 to 10, Wednesday we're closed, Thursday we're closed, Friday we're back open 2 to 2, Saturday we're open 10 to 3, Sunday we're open this to that, Monday we're closed, next Tuesday we're open for just for takeout, on Thursday we're open just for outside. It's like, fuck me, the amount of resources that these companies are spending just to abide by the rules is making them so horrifically inefficient and has become such a waste of time and resources that it really isn't worth it anymore. And then, really, you know, if you want to listen to my rant about the governor, you should listen to my last podcast, my experience I had when I went to the casino a couple weeks ago. But really... If you're Tom Wolf to come out and say that a bar and a restaurant can't serve liquor the day before, the night before Thanksgiving, is just a terrible thing to do. I mean, that is that is on the verge of some type of economic crime, if you ask me. If you work in the bar and restaurant scene, the night before Thanksgiving is always your busiest night of the year. These businesses have been decimated all year decimated and now they're gonna hack this last leg out from underneath them you know we're two weeks three weeks ahead away from getting a vaccine widely distributed or starting to distribute a vaccine the country i feel like to some degree is making peace with covid psychologically people want to be out the people i see out the people i see at restaurants the general consensus is People want things to be open. They want things to be available if they want to go there. They want to be able to make the personal choice as to whether or not they can go out. And certainly the business owners are tired of it. Certainly the business owners want to get back to normal. And again, like I said on my last podcast, there's nothing terrible about saying you you can make a personal decision about your business or a personal decision about your family. You're more than welcome to stay home and do nothing. You're more than welcome to keep your restaurant closed. But if you're comfortable It's been a year. We understand the risks of COVID. The decision is yours. You know, the decision is yours at this point. We trust the public to make the right decisions for themselves. But that's not what's happened. So you got all these businesses trying to keep up, and I feel bad for them. I I really do. I feel bad. If you're in Philadelphia, by the way, my favorite bar in the city is called Locust Rendezvous. Make sure you stop in and see my friend, Michelle, who bartends there during the day, tell her I sent you. Um, she is just wonderful, and the bar is one of my favorite places on earth. And I don't want to see anybody succeed and thrive 
through this pandemic more so than I want to see them succeed and thrive. I need to see them get out the other side of this pandemic because I plan on sitting at that bar in a couple of months and bitching and moaning to Michelle about my life, which I've been doing for, I don't know, 15 years now. <laughs> Look, if you're going to patronize a bar in Philadelphia, that's the one to do it. Find Michelle, tell her Chris sent you, and tell her uh, I'm coming back soon and I need them to stay open. Because we've all got to do our part, folks. You know, everybody has to do their part in helping the bar scene survive so that my social agenda can continue unabated. As we know, that's what the pandemic is all about. So let's get back to gold, though, for a second. Gold has been crashing over the last two or three sessions. I think it closed earlier today at... Uh, fuck. Well, I don't have the fucking thing on my screen anymore, but it was around 1,800 an ounce. And the sell-off has been pretty dramatic in gold over the last three or four sessions. Uh, it's gotten crushed, I think, like 6-7% uh, over the course of those several sessions, which is a relatively sizable move for a commodity, and especially for gold. So why is that happening? Well, I think there's a couple of things at play. I think there is a small... Uh, I think there's some... I think gold, by the way, is being taxed differently next year. So I think some people are selling now to take their gains and get taxed, I think, at a lower rate. Somebody wrote that to me in an email. I can't remember who. Uh, I don't know if it's true, by the way. Do your research elsewhere. Also, um, I think that the lack of stimulus is turning some gold buyers away. I, You know, I was having an argument with Mark Spiegel uh, very early this morning on Twitter about gold over the, you know, whether or not gold is undervalued right now and relative to the amount of money that has already been printed. And I think that gold hasn't even caught up to where it should be as a result of the $3 trillion we just printed. But, you know, that's just my opinion. If you look at the M2 money supply over a chart with gold, that's basically what I'm looking at there to to make that justification. I think gold should be three, $4,000 an ounce now. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not. Let's just assume that you think gold is fairly valued or was fairly valued, you know, a month ago in proportion to the amount of stimulus that had been done already. Let's say 1950 was fair value on gold, which again, I don't think it is, but let's just assume that. There, you know, in addition to maybe the tax consequence, you're going to be a seller too if you don't think that there's any more new money being printed. And you would be more likely to lighten up your position at that point um, in hearing that no more money would be printed than to add. Plus, you have this huge resistance at $2,000 an ounce, right? You got this big round number that marks a, uh, you know, a selling point for a lot of people. And I don't think that that ever turned into real support despite what I've heard on other podcasts and what other people have claimed uh, it would be nice, but now it certainly doesn't look like 2000 is support for gold. Uh, and that's not to say it shouldn't be above that, but it's just to say I think that the lack of stimulus and the inability to get a deal done, again, going back to basically, hey, you can have $1,200 and the billionaires will get $1.3 trillion. Everybody else can go fuck themselves, have a nice day. Going back to that line of thinking, if there isn't additional uh, stimulus that may be a reason for it to sell off. The other interesting thing is, you know, it's selling off at a time where we have a Democratic president who, again, as I said earlier, just linked the Fed and the Treasury probably closer than they have ever been 
with uh, Yellen coming in as Treasury Secretary. Yellen is a dove to begin with. It's not like he appointed some, you know, gold bug, some hawk. Judy Shelton, that nomination never happened because at one point she discussed the horrifying, oh God, oh the humanity, oh the horrifying idea of having sound money. God help us all, how dare her. We can't let her anywhere near the uh, the, the Federal Open Markets Committee. Right, Neil? <laughs> and we have gold just being made a tier one asset. That happened last year by the International Bank of Settlements that Andy Schechtman has talked about on the last couple of podcasts I've done with him. So to me, the idea that, you know, we have a good chance of socializing even more spending and printing more money going forward under a Biden administration looks pretty good. So to me, again, I said this morning, I think this is an opportunity. Um, I don't make that recommendation to anybody else, but certainly I bought some names that I had missed on that I would have liked to have owned six months ago, but missed on the way up. Uh, So I added some uh, Newmont today, and I don't know what else I bought. I think I may have bought some uh, GLD, and I'm going to look at the physical bullion inventory at JM Bullion at some point if gold stays here or goes any lower, and maybe just add a little bit to that. Like Sheckman said on my last podcast, you know, Sheckman said, well, you know, I just buy a little bit every month. I just buy a little bit every week. I just buy a little bit every day, whatever. Because really... And I was having this argument with Mark Spiegel this morning on Twitter, who was like, oh, I can't believe that anybody would say that there's never a bad time to buy gold. Well, if you think that it's massively undervalued relative to the money supply, then you can say that there's never a bad time to buy it until it meets your expectations. And he made some comment about Peter Schiff in, I guess he was attributing that thought process to Peter Schiff that, oh, Peter Schiff says, you know, there's never a bad time to own gold. You know, and it, to Schiff's credit, if you believe in his thesis and you are a long-term focused investor with as it relates to gold, as I am, you know, I'm looking out decades. I'm not looking at the technicals today. But if you're of that mindset, well, then really to me, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a bad time to add. You add when it's up, you add when it's down, everything kind of fucking averages out in a wash. If over the long term you think it's going to 5000 or 10000 who cares if you add it 1900 2100 1600 or whatever. So that's the thought process there. He was commenting, oh, well, you know, there's support at 1800 I was a seller at 1990 I was a buyer at 1800 It's like, all right, whatever. Whatever. You want to be a trader? You could trade it. You know, he said, oh, the, you never think there's a time it's gotten out ahead of itself. Not when I zoom out and look at it over, you know, a 50 or 100 year uh, period of time. I don't feel like it's gotten ahead of itself. Um, Maybe over the short term, maybe he's looking at a one day chart, you know, and he sees a 5% run up in a day as, oh, it's overextended itself. And to some degree, there would be portions of positions I would sell off if that happened. But I would keep an underlying core position and I don't have any trouble adding when it goes down, specifically because, again, my time frame is uh, much longer for gold. It's decades, if not centuries. Because the foundation that this line of thinking sits on is the idea that monetary policy isn't going to change materially globally. And it really can't right now. Monetary policy is, for the most part, kind of 
trapped and backed into a corner. I mean, we have to keep low rates. We have to keep stimulus going. Otherwise, the markets are going to crash. So as long as the markets remain the number one mandate for central banks globally, which I think, and asset prices, which I think will be the case, then they're going to have to keep printing. And if they're going to keep printing, then gold measured in whatever bullshit fiat you want to measure it in is going to wind up going higher. So that's the thesis there. And then if you get the case like a big reset, like countries going to digital, uh, they're going to have to, I think, eventually realign those currencies back with gold. Otherwise, they're just making up bullshit to substitute other bullshit with out of thin air. And I'm not sure that psychologically people are going to buy into the idea of a new fiat to replace an old fiat. I think it's going to have to be backed by something. Uh, you know, uh, Otherwise, people are just going to say, well, you know, you're replacing fun coupons with other fun coupons. Now, for those of you that have listened to me over the last six months, nine months, you know that not only were we ahead of the curve in predicting what the impact of COVID would be on the nation. By the way, I just want to, you know, I don't really like to toot my own horn because I don't get a lot of stuff right. But back in January, February, to come out and say that the entire nation would be wearing masks and to prepare yourself for a serious pandemic. And I have the duct tape and the Tyvek suits and the goggles to prove it. That, you know, I thought that this was going to have a massive, profound impact on the country. To say that shit in January, and there was only a small group of people that were saying it, Chris Martinson, a couple other people, you sounded like a batshit, crazy, insane person. I mean, I, I, you know, the world is different now because we're used to going out and seeing everybody in masks. I put out this tweet, I'll never forget, in like February or March, and I said, start preparing yourself for the psychological impact of leaving the house and seeing everybody in masks. It's like nothing you've ever seen before, and it's going to be important to stay mentally fit as well as physically fit during the upcoming pandemic. And people were just like, you stupid motherfucker, what are you talking about? You know, that's crazy, you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, you think it's the apocalypse, you think this, that, and the other. Well, lo and behold, here we are nine months later, and the whole world is out wearing masks. In March, or April, when I started to come to and make sense of the virus, once we started getting data from outside of China, and we were able to kind of objectively examine the virus... And the Fed launched QE Infinity. I started to think of the idea, well, is it time to be a contrarian? Is it time to start buying? Because I think what's going to happen is equities are going to go up and asset prices are going to go up again. We're going to see inflation. And I think gold's going to go up at the same time. And what has happened over the last... And by the way, I'm not just pulling shit out of my ass. You can go... I have a number of podcast guest appearances I've done on other people's shows on my YouTube channel. You can go back through my tweets. You can go back and listen to my old podcasts. But March, April, May, June, I'm saying, hey, long equities, long gold. And both of them are going up because the the thesis is the economy doesn't matter anymore. We're going to print as much as we need to make the down number go up. And the dollar is going to get used and abused and gold will rise as a result of that, which I still think will happen. Um, and I said, you know, several times it's going to be a race to 4,000 between the SPX and gold. I still think that race is on. I think the S&P is going to get there first. Uh, I think we're, we trade well into the 4,000s next year without a problem. I think gold probably eclipses 2,000 finally and stays there next year. Um, we'll have to see. But uh, so that those were my ideas dating back, you know, six months, whatever. Um, maybe three months ago, I started to leg into travel and leisure, financials, and energy a little bit more because 
as the market had started to recover, those were the sectors that disproportionately were still kind of beat down. And I put out a tweet yesterday kind of jokingly saying, oh, it's your last chance to to look at travel and leisure names for a couple of reasons. One, they're the only stocks that are still down relative to where they were prior to the pandemic. And the data we've been getting regarding vaccines has been very encouraging. I mean, even Fauci and the quote unquote mainstream names are saying, hey, this pandemic is, you know, it's going to be over. It's going to be over in, in a couple of months or we're going to be well on our way to being over. And psychologically, the nation will get over it. So I have predicted several times. And again, these are all just predictions, not financial advice. Don't follow my advice. Do your research elsewhere. I have predicted and will predict that next year's travel season, the spring going into the summer is going to be an absolute blowout. It's going to be an absolute blowout. I think it will break records for travel. I think there is going to be wanderlust built up in people's systems that is going to make its way out. And I think as you know, airlines will start to lobby and try to uh, ease restrictions. And I think eventually we get back to a period of, of some normalcy next year with that. And so uh, I like those sectors. Uh, I still own uh, energy. I still own travel and leisure. I think oil demand rises as people start traveling again, obviously. And uh, I like financials still, too, because everybody say, well, there's a lot of bad loans that are going to be coming due. It doesn't matter. The Fed is offering these financial institutions unlimited backstops. That's it. That's all you need to know. So uh, I have owned those sectors for the last couple of months. I've talked about it publicly and those are the ones that I continue to own. I like gold. I like uh, energy names. I like the travel and leisure names. I think they, they could disproportionately have the opportunity to outperform what I think is going to be a further expanding equity bubble as we move into the end of this year. I think retail holiday sales will be a blowout. Uh, I think that, uh, and I think that's going to carry us with serious momentum into next year. And I think I was actually discussing this with a buddy of mine yesterday. We were talking about how pissed we were that we haven't seen each other in a while. And I said to him, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, we avoided the end of the world style parties next year, which is great news because A, if you just like the party, it should be a very good environment for doing that next year. I think people are just going to go ape shit by summer next year. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, you know, ho- hopefully every U.S. major city looks like Carnival next summer. <laughs> should be a total shit show. Because um, I think people have a lot of pent-up desire to go out and party. And I think that's going to happen. So that's good news. And I think it's just going to be uh, euphoria as it comes to spending and uh, as it comes to just getting things back to normal. I think that this pandemic put a lot of things in perspective for a lot of people too to kind of get on some philosophical shit. I think that the pandemic helped align a lot of people in terms of what's important. Certainly, I was having this discussion yesterday with a friend of mine about you know how nice it feels to just give somebody a hug how good it feels to just be close to somebody out in public, how nice it is to just go on a normal date, how nice it is to just be around people. Um, And I think that a lot of those things that we took for granted over the last however long, you know, however long you've been alive, however long you've been doing that, a lot of that kind of got reframed and refocused uh, over the course of the pandemic. And I think that philosophically and ideologically, that is actually going to impact Spending. I, I hate the I hate the term animal spirits. 
I think it's so stupid. It really is. I hate all these terms. Animal spirits, the Santa Claus rally. They're just bullshit excuses to justify a market that's being rigged by the central bank, okay? But let's just say, let's just say animal spirits. I think it will drum up some animal spirits in terms of what is going to happen for the economy. I think there's going to be a reversion back to normal, and I think that 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 reversion could swing wildly in the uh, in the other direction first before kind of rebounding and adjusting maybe toward the end of next year and getting us back on like a normal trajectory. So I think that the euphoria could be off the charts next year. And uh, we'll have to see. I'll either be eating large quantities of shit with this prediction or uh, or I'll be right on the money. But one thing you can't deny is that there were a small group of people that had this thing pinned this year and st- Certainly, there was a very small group of people in April, May, June saying, oh, equities and gold, it's going to be a race. Every CNBC commentator said, oh, we got to test the lows again. Oh, we got to test the lows. We're going back down. We're going back down to 2,700. We're going back down to 2,300. Fucking no. Not what happened. You know, the Fed lit a fuse under the market's ass and the market went straight up. And, And in the words of the great Nate Diaz, I'm not surprised, motherfuckers. So that's where I stand for now. I have a couple of great guests lined up, but I've been enjoying doing these little solo talks, these little intimate discussions with you, me, and my little sip of brandy I'm having here very, very late at night. Lovely to talk to you guys, and I will be back relatively soon, but for right now, I am the fuck out. Peace.